0: Good morning. My name's Adam. Welcome to Northwest Community Church. It's a great day of celebration today as we celebrate Jesus entering into his final days and really what that means for us um, as believers. A few weeks back, we as a family went to Disney World. And uh, if you've been to Disney World, you know that it is the land of happiness and joy, especially for parents. It is, yep. We, uh, we go and we have one goal, and that is to meet as many princesses as humanly possible. I have a little four-year-old and a little three-year-old and so that's why, not because I'm like, I want to be the princesses. But uh, so we get all the fast passes and, you know, we, we schedule out our day and we're like, okay, we're going to go here, here, and here and we look at the map and it makes sense to do this circle and go here and, and we map, well, Jade maps all that out, and I just kind of follow behind. But this is, this is our goal. We got to meet them all. And so we're standing in these lines 30, 40 minutes, and we are, you know, talking to the girls and trying to get them ready for, for the princesses. And hey, what are you going to say when you meet them? Are you going to give them a hug? Depending on the princess, yes, no, uh, you know, but we have a lot of time to, to prepare them for that interaction. And we get to the front of the lines, and it didn't matter what princess. There was a couple that they, I guess, smiled at. But out of all the conversation, literally, we'd walk in, and they would just do this. And as a parent, you're like, I paid good money for this. Like, say something. And you know, the princesses are talking to them and they're interacting, and our kids are just like. So I, like all the time that we spent just preparing them for that moment, but they had to make a decision when they came face to face with that princess. And that is, am I going to embrace? Am I going to am I gonna smile? Am I gonna am I, am I gonna speak to them? Or am I going to, which was more often than not, am I going to reject them with my body language and my, my facial expressions, which was most of the time the case, but they were faced with that decision. When I come face to face with this person, how will I respond? You know, typically on a Palm Sunday, we preach messages of of hope and we preach messages of peace. And while that is laced throughout this story, and that is what it's about, I'm going to take a little bit of a different angle on it this morning. And I don't have, you know, for those of you that take notes, I'm not going to have main points. I really just want all of us this morning, to come face-to-face with Jesus and then be faced with the question, when I am face-to-face with him, what am I going to do with him? Am I going to embrace him or am I going to reject him? And that's really what I'm hoping this morning, that we all come face-to-face, but my hope is that we embrace, um, but we're faced with that decision this morning. Now, We've been in the Gospel of John for, uh, for about a month and some change now. And uh, over that time, we have, uh, we've learned a lot about Jesus, and we've learned a lot about how he interacts with people, uh, how he speaks to people, the, the way that he heals people, and then uses that as a lesson uh, for those that ha- have observed. Uh, we, we saw Jesus teach Nicodemus the meaning of new life and what it means to be spiritually born again. We saw him teach uh, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well no matter what her past looked like, no matter what decisions and mistakes she's made, Jesus was offering her living water, water that would not satisfy. And of course we know that as being him. We saw Jesus multiply five loaves and two fish to feed over 5,000 people and then use that to teach on uh, the needs of them spiritually. We saw Jesus heal a man who'd been born blind, which showed us the power over the physical body that Jesus has. And then we, we see him raise his dear friend Lazarus from the dead, So not only power over the body, but power over death, power over the grave. And then last week we saw, as Matt taught, Jesus get down on his hands and knees and humbly, in the form of a servant, wash the, the feet of the disciples. And so we see all these things that are really, really great about Jesus. And today, today we're going to, um, we're still going to be in the Gospel of John. And today is a day of celebration because today is Palm Sunday. Today is the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem uh, 2,000 years ago, roughly, on a donkey. We see him being humble, we see him being confident, even in that humility, and he's ready to take on the pain of the suffering, the rejection, the death that he's going to face, so that we can have freedom from sin and access to God the Father. And this is the day that marks the beginning of what we call Holy Week. And so, uh, maybe, maybe in your family, you guys do reflect each day leading up to um, leading up to Easter on on what Christ was doing in in the week leading up to that to that moment. And so, uh, it's Holy Week. It's the week that we. Consider Holy Week or Passion Week. Um, before we get into the story, I, I want to build a foundation for us that really kind of sets the groundwork for why it was so important that Jesus entered Jerusalem and what he was going to do. Over the course of his time on earth, really the three and a half years of ministry that he, uh, that he walked, we see that he really built up a lot of opposition in his life um, based on the things that he claimed, the, the things that he taught. When he would do certain things on the Sabbath he would eat and associate with sinners, which back then as, as a rabbi, that was a, that was a big no-no. And so the religious leaders are going, Hey, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be associating with those people. Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites, and he called them the you know, broods of vipers, and he called them fools, which means a moron. So you can imagine kind of their animosity is starting to build towards him as he's treating the outcast a certain way, but then also treating the religious leaders, the righteous, a, a different way. It was kind of opposite of what they thought should be the case. But the 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 number one reason that they felt hatred towards Jesus, we find it in in John 5, 18, says this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And this was the big issue that they really had with Christ more so than anything else. The fact that he would claim to be, first of all, associated with God in that way, but then implying that he was equal with God, on equal standing, equal footing with God. And so they hated him so much. And then we have, in, as we talked about a few weeks ago, the raising of Lazarus. Look at, um, go ahead and flip over to John 12. That's where we're gonna be. But we see in, in John 12, verse nine through 11, as, as Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, this is kind of the final straw for the Pharisees because this is where Jesus really starts to gather a lot of people and the crowds begin to kind of shift their focus from the Pharisees and the religious leaders to, to Jesus because of this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. So look at verses 9 through 11 in John chapter 12. It says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised From the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So Lazarus is evidence of Jesus' claims of divinity, and the crowds are kind of starting to take a detour from their, their, their journey into Jerusalem for this, this Passover week, and they're starting to turn their attention to Christ. And so the chief priests who had a desire for popularity, a desire for people to follow them, were getting really upset. And so what they wanted to do is they need to kill Jesus, but also kill Lazarus, because Lazarus was evidence. And so they're, they're purposing in their hearts together to, to put an end to Jesus' And, and to Lazarus, and rid the world of any evidence of him. And so Jesus knows this. This is what Jesus is entering into when he comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, ready and willing. And we see all throughout Jesus's his ministry that when he would heal somebody, oftentimes he would say, go in and tell no one, for my time has not yet come. But now the time has come. And so he's entering willing at the perfect time in God's plan to enter in and to finally be taken and killed, um, which is why he was sent to this earth. And so here he comes. This is, this is the grand entrance, um, not what they expected, but grand nonetheless. So look at verses 12 through 15. It says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So palm branches came in that time to generally be a symbol of of victory, of celebration. The Jews had this hope that Jesus was a the messianic king, the conquering warrior that was going to enter into Jerusalem that day and he was gonna overthrow the, the Roman government. He was gonna come in and he was gonna overthrow, he was gonna conquer and he was gonna establish the kingdom of Israel on earth. This is what they were hoping for. So they are they are celebrating, they're, they're, they're treating him like royalty, like this person coming in just to, to take his throne, his place as king. And this is why they're shouting Hosanna. They're shouting Hosanna, which is the Hebrew word that means save now, I pray, they're shouting, save us, save us from the rule of Rome. Please save us, establish your kingdom once and for all, save us. This is what they believed in their hearts was taking place. And this is why it followed also with blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This wasn't just a random chant that they were just kind of coming up with. And one guy's like, yeah, Hosanna. And they're like, yeah, Hosanna. And it's, it's something that they they knew to be true in scripture because Psalm 118, 25 through 26 says, Save us, we pray. Hosanna, save us, we pray. Save us, O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they're quoting Psalm 118 when they're, when they're shouting these things. In the other gospels, we find additional details to this account. We see that people spreading their clothes on, on the road in front of him. Doing that was, was to pay homage to someone who was considered royalty, which that furthers the idea that they thought he was the, the king, Israel's king coming in. But if he had been the conquering warrior that they were expecting, he probably would have rode in uh, on a little bit of a different steed than a donkey, right? I mean, you would see him coming in on this war horse, a stallion. And um, this is kind of the the Roman entrance. You know, they have these big old horses and it's, it's, man, we're victorious. And and this is the the symbol of of victory. And, And a war horse is powerful and strong. And that's not what he did. And so these people, just a few days later, the same crowds that were shouting, Hosanna, save us, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, were the same ones that shouted, crucify him, crucify him. We reject him, he's nothing to us. So they're all faced with the question that I'm posing this morning. They're face-to-face with Jesus and they have a decision to make. Now, we need to pause here and we need to uncover the, the significance of this event on this day in this year. And that's why I have a whiteboard here. And uh, we're gonna kind of do a little bit of math together, okay? There's a lot of Old Testament prophecies that are, are really incredible Oftentimes, we kind of say, oh, yeah, you know, we, we see in Isaiah that, you know, the, the crucifixion and the arrest and, and the trial and all that stuff of Jesus, and it speaks so specifically to, to what Jesus went through. Uh, this this um, verse 15, fear not, daughter of Zion, he's coming on a donkey's cult. That's in Zechariah 9 9. And so we see fulfillment in, in the New Testament, but sometimes we need to, to kind of prove, right? We can say, well, um, the skeptic would say, well, this Bible was written, and they could have easily written it so that the Old Testament matched up and, and they could could have done that, uh, so, but we have to look at history, and there's some historical fact that I want to point out that it's really hard to deny the, the, the prophecy, and so let's, just, let's, go, let's go to it, because I, I want to read this. Daniel um, chapter 9 is going to be on the, on the screen, and then we're going to kind of break it down a little bit. Now, when I read Daniel 9, it's going to be a little bit confusing, so we're going to pull some stuff out of it, and I'm going to try to explain it clearly, but I just think, I think it's so awesome. When I was reading about this this week, I was just blown away at the specific. of this this prophecy. So Daniel 9, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet and to anoint a most holy place. "...know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing." So let's break it down, okay? In this prophecy, we have a beginning, we have a middle, and we have an end. Those are gonna be up here so you guys can kind of see as we break it down. The beginning is marked by the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. The middle is seven weeks and 62 weeks. So let's just say 69 weeks because that's 62 plus seven. And the end is the coming of an anointed one who shall be cut off and have nothing. So the beginning... Nehemiah 2.1 says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So Nehemiah makes a request to the king that uh, he wants to go back and he wants to rebuild Jerusalem. He wants to go... Back to the city, his home that is in ruins, and, and rebuild. And the king grants him his request. And he hands him pieces of paper that say it is by the king's permission that he can go. So as he's passing through towns and cities, he shows these decrees and they allow him to pass through on his way to Jerusalem. And so the king has issued a decree. Number one is the decree is issued to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, historically, we know that King Artaxerxes, or maybe you don't, but if you look it up, it's historical fact that he. He began his reign in 465 BC. And the, the prophecy says the, the beginning of the decree. So in Nehemiah 2.1, it says 20th year of his reign. Okay. So simple math is the beginning was 465, 20 years in would be 445 BC. So let's have that as our starting point. Okay. So we've got 445 BC. This is the beginning of the prophecy. The middle, 69 weeks total. Contextually, when Daniel was written, the term week was actually meant in years. So what it, what it, the way you would say it is 69 weeks of years, seven days in a week, so 69 times seven, okay? Now, you might, if you're not a math person, you might get lost here, but just hang on till the end. It'll all kind of make sense, okay? So um, 69 times seven, this is gonna give us the amount of years in the Jewish calendar. So we have uh, 69... Times seven, and that is going to give us 483. So this is the um, amount of Jewish years that middle part of the prophecy is talking about. Now, it's important that we say Jewish years because the Jewish calendar was 360 days. It's not like we know it today. So 360 days when Daniel was written, but we also need to convert to our calendar, which is what our scripture was written in. So we're gonna take 483 years. This is if you're a math person, you might like this. And we're gonna multiply that by 360 days a year. And we're gonna get 173,880 days. This is the middle of the prophecy. Now, if we're gonna break that down to our calendar, we're gonna divide that by 365, you guys are loving this, aren't you? Like school on a Sunday, Um, 365. And that's gonna give us 476.4 years. This is the the middle prophecy in years in our calendar. Now, if you take 445 BC and you add, progress 476.4 years, that's gonna put you at 31.4 A.D., Now we're at the end of our prophecy, okay? So the end. Now there's some speculation as to when Jesus was born. We don't know the exact date. We know that he lived to be about 33 and a half, but we don't know exactly. A lot of people say, well, it must have been zero because that's, you know, Before Christ was before zero, and now he's here, so zero. But we don't know exactly, and there's a lot, therefore, a lot of speculation as to when he died. But every person that would argue the dates always comes somewhere between 30 and 33 A.D., okay? This puts you about smack dab in the middle of 30 and 33 A.D. So this prophecy that was written 550 to 600 years before this happened— um, the prophecy that was written 100 or so years before Nehemiah takes place, um, this is historical. You can look this stuff up and see dates that historians would say are true. And the end of the prophecy is an anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. At the end of this week that we celebrate the death and resurrection, Jesus will be killed, cut off, and have nothing. So Jesus, the fulfillment of a prophecy that is way too specific to pass up. So you imagine these Jews, they, they know prophecy. They know these things. And so they're they're anticipating the Messiah coming. They're anticipating why he's going to come. Now they got it a little bit wrong because he wasn't coming to save them physically, literally from Rome. He was coming to save them in a different way. But he was entering Jerusalem on this day, the anointed one to be cut off. And that is way too specific to ignore. And I think it's incredible because we go, man, Old Testament prophecy, but it's Old Testament and it's so boring. I don't understand what Daniel says, but if you can read into it and break it down and see that it's so precise and so exact, it's unbelievable. And so they were, they were so excited for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years they're looking forward to this day. And so you can, you can understand a little bit more their anticipation and the excitement that they had. No wonder they were celebrating him coming in. Look at verses 16 through 19, and then, and then we're going to move on. It says, his disciples did not understand these things at first, which by the way, they still didn't understand Even after he was resurrected, these things, they didn't understand until the spirit was given to them after Jesus had ascended into heaven, but which is, So they're like, okay, we have to end this. Look, they're they're going after him. They're following him. They're praising him. We can't have this happen anymore. So he enters Jerusalem. That's why we celebrate today. But why? why? Why is it important for us to celebrate him entering Jerusalem? Why did he come that day? Look at verses 27 through 30. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now, the word troubled literally means to shake or to stir up. And it's used figuratively to to express a, uh, a mental or spiritual agitation of being disturbed, upset, unsettled, uh, maybe horrified. So why would Jesus be troubled like that? Well, because of the anticipation of, of bearing the shame and Um, of sin and and the the wrath of God that was going to be poured out on him and um, being separated from the Father. Maybe that's why he was so troubled. I mean, Jesus had only ever known perfect fellowship with God the Father, and he had never sinned. He'd never experienced, even in the slightest, what he was about to take on for the world. And so you can imagine the trouble... The, the turmoil in his soul, but even, it's, it's unbelievable, even with that kind of trouble in his spirit, he says, Father, glorify your name. That's why I've come to this hour. Glorify your name. I know it's gonna be hard, but I'm willing to do it because if this is what gives you the most glory, then I'm willing to go through anything for that. Glorify your name. And then here it, here's the kind of the, the crucial moment of why Jesus says he really came. Look at verse 31 through 33. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. When I am lifted up from this earth, in a few short days, Jesus will be lifted up from the earth on a cross. He will be raised onto that cross, and the result of that death, what does he say? All people will be drawn to me. I will draw all men to myself. That's the purpose. That's why he entered Jerusalem that day. Not to save them from Roman rule, but to be lifted up on a cross so that all men might come to him. James Montgomery Boyce has a quote that illustrates that point very, very well. He says in the whole of human history, nothing, no matter how important or how unusual has attracted men and women like the uplifted Christ. In the ancient world, men and women turned out by the hundreds of thousands to praise the Roman emperors as they returned from their military triumphs. But the emperors passed on one by one. Certainly millions are caught up in the excitement of a World Series or Super Bowl playoff, but this year's winner will soon be forgotten. Unless it's your team, I guess you'll remember forever. And even at the peak of excitement, even on the day of the Super Bowl contest itself, not so many can be found watching the playoff as can be found on the same day, morning and evening, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord has attracted more people to Madison Square Garden in New York for more consecutive days and in greater total number than any event in New York's history Christian radio programs have endured for decades while secular programs have succumbed to changing fancies. And Christian churches have remained strong from generation to generation and have even grown in both impact and numbers. What is the attraction? It is not the attraction of mere human personality, for they change. It is not denominational distinctive, for they are all different. The attraction is the uplifted Christ Jesus promised to draw people to himself, and so he has. Nothing or no one has ever attracted men and women like Jesus. It is the Christ of Calvary who draws. It is the Christ whose blood was shed and whose body was broken. It is the Christ who gave himself in the place of sinners so that he might bear in himself the proper and justified wrath of God. Amen. Jesus came to this earth to glorify God through his sacrificial death on a cross. And what did that death accomplish? Well, John 3, 16 and 17 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's why Jesus entered Jerusalem, to die because God loved you so much. That he was willing to send his son to die so that the world might be saved through him. This is why he enters Jerusalem. This is why he rides on a donkey in confident humility, knowing that he would be betrayed by one of his own, knowing that he would be arrested and brought before the high priest, spat upon, mocked, punched in the face. He knew that the same people who were shouting praises would days later shout, crucify, kill him. We reject him. He knew that he would be stripped of of his clothes, put in a scarlet robe with a crown of thorns, twisted onto his head with the purpose of mocking his supposed kingship. He knew that he would be spat on again and again, that they would beat that crown of thorns into his skull with a rod. He knew that his back would be torn to pieces by a whip, with shards of glass and metal at the ends. He knew he would have nails driven into his wrists and driven into his ankles. He knew that he would suffocate to death on a cross while the Roman soldiers were gambling over his clothes and while a sign hung above his head, mocking who he claimed to be. He knew all of that and still entered Jerusalem willing in one of the greatest and most extreme acts of love in the history of the universe on his way to his death sentence because when the son of man is lifted up, all men will come to him. Romans ten nine says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe it in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you believe what Jesus did for you on that cross, if you confess that and believe it in your heart, yes, I believe, then you'll be saved. And so this morning, We're faced with a decision because we're face-to-face right now in this moment with the real Jesus. We're face-to-face with what he did, why he entered Jerusalem. Will you embrace this Jesus? Will Will you run to him? Will you cry out, Hosanna, save me! Save me, Jesus, please! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord or will you reject him and continue to reject him I want nothing to do with you, Jesus. I pray, and I've been praying this whole week that if you don't know Jesus as your savior in this room this morning, that you would embrace him. Um, I'm gonna be down here after the service. Um, I, I just, if you're if you're struck by that and you don't know Jesus and you at least wanna ask some questions and consider that, please come talk to me. Talk to somebody, maybe you came with, with a, a friend, talk to them. I don't want anyone to leave this room. I, I, anytime we preach, we want Jesus preached, and we want the gospel to be clear, and I don't want anyone to leave this room without knowing who he is, knowing why he died, and, and understanding that personally. And then for us, who call ourselves Christians, man, we have so much to look forward to, we have so much to celebrate because of what Jesus did in, in this whole week, what we celebrate him dying, but then him, him rising from, from the dead and what that means for us. But we have so much more. And as we look at prophecy and as we look at things that have been fulfilled, this, this should give us confidence in prophecy about the future, If we can see this and go, man, historically to the day, and and this came true and so many other things came true about Jesus and how he died and and what they did to him specifically and, and other prophecies that led to the New Testament, if we can see that and then look to the future and we can rest in future prophecies as well. Listen to Revelation 19, 11 through 16. If we're his followers, we anxiously await his return. And this is what his return is gonna be like. Oh, I can't wait. Then I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, of the wrath of God, the almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They are waiting for him to enter Jerusalem because he is their King. Yes, but not in the way that they were hoping, but we know the story. We know how the story went. We know how the story will end. And so we look forward to him. Yes. Coming. Yes. Saving us forever, but King of Kings and Lord of Lords establishing his throne on this earth, and so we can we can sing out to him and cry out to him forever and, and come before his throne, and so we look forward to that day when he has ultimate victory over over death he, he, he will resurrect and he will bring us back, and he will, he will create a new heaven, a new earth, and we look forward to that day as believers. We should look forward to that day, anxious anticipation of what is to come, yes, he 's coming on a white horse, and yes he 's going to save us, and yes he will. Be be our king forever. And that is what we look forward to. Let's continue in worship. Yes, please. For God. Yes. Please get excited about that. Uh, let's pray, and um, then we're gonna sing a few more songs again. I'm gonna be down here. Uh, if you have any questions or, or wanna pray, or if you have any questions about what it means to be a follower of his, come talk to me, please. Um, God, thank you for this morning, and uh, thank you for why we celebrate. Thank you for uh, the story of your son entering Jerusalem um, and, and how we can look back and know how that, that story ends and the purpose of him entering. And God, I pray that if someone is in this room and they don't know you personally as Savior, that God, you would just use your spirit to, to, to draw them to to yourself and, and challenge their heart and, and, and God I pray that you would just open the door for them to, to walk in you, you invite, you knock and you say anyone that answers I'm here and so God please don't let them leave this room use your spirit I pray God use your spirit on them and, and uh, give them courage and boldness to come and talk to somebody God um, and those of us that are believers I, I, I just pray that we would look forward in, in anxious anticipation to, to your return I pray that we would celebrate this week knowing what we celebrate it's It's humbling, it's sobering, but yeah, God, we we celebrate your your son's death and we celebrate him rising again because of what that means for us. That means we have freedom from sin. That means we have freedom from the grave. That means we are resurrected, as scripture said, with your son. And so God, I pray that we would focus on that intently in our hearts this week, in our minds this week, and come next week to Easter ready just to lift your name up and to celebrate God. Give us a great rest of our time as we sing. Uh, Let us sing and lift our voices in a passionate way because you deserve it. You deserve more than we can give, God, but I pray that we would just offer everything we have to you over the next few moments as we lift up your name. God, we love you so much. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your spirit in your son's name. Amen.